Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. And I'm Zach James, occupying stolen Lenape lands as well. Thanks for joining us today for another Q&A episode. If you're listening to this podcast and you're not already receiving our newsletter, we hope you'll go to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com and sign up. All newsletter subscribers have a chance to win a signed copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, and the accompanying workbook during each and every Q&A episode. Yeah, absolutely. Please connect with us through the website. And thank you to those who've already subscribed and who send in questions. As usual, we've got a lot of really great listener questions today, but we'll get to that later. Exactly. In the meantime, Darylise and I and today's special guests have a lot to talk about. This last series has been a little different in that rather than looking at any one group of individuals, we're looking at a subject that impacts people of all identities. Right. Yes. Our sports series, which Zach, I know you were super jazzed about, but in our sports series, we've been delving into inadequate representation and ownership in athletics, as well as the importance of fostering diversity and inclusivity in sports and in society. And today, Zach and I are joined by the incredible Nikki Frank, who has had a long and illustrious career in the athletic arena. So a world-class athlete herself, Frank has accomplished quite a lot, both nationally and internationally. She was a member of the 1976 and 1980 U.S. Olympic fencing teams and was the United States Fencing Association's national foil champion in both 1975 and 1980. Nikki competed in the 1975 and 1979 Pan-American Games, capturing a silver medal in the 1975 individual foil competition and a bronze in the 1979 competition. While attending Brooklyn College, where she graduated with honors, Nikki was a four-year letter winner, placing third individually at the 1972 NIWFA National Championships and was named an NIWFA All American. In 1979, she was inducted into the Brooklyn College Hall of Fame. And I should say that after transitioning into the role of coach, she continued to receive additional Hall of Fame honors and awards. In 1995, Nikki was inducted into the Temple University Athletics Hall of Fame. In 1998, she was inducted into the United States Fencing Association Hall of Fame. And in 2002, she was inducted into the International Sports Hall of fame, which was established by the Women's Sports Foundation. Nikki was one of only three women to be inducted that year and was chosen based on her impressive coaching, playing, teaching, and community service records. A true trailblazer in her field, she was the first Black woman hired to coach an NCAA fencing team. And now in her 49th year at the helm of the Temple Fencing Program, Dr. Frank recently led the Temple Owls to their highest ranking in program history, which the team accomplished during a pandemic. She recently retired as an associate professor in Temple University's Department of Public Health, and she holds a master's degree in health education as well as a doctorate degree. So Nikki, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate you asking. Awesome. This is so awesome. Thank you for joining us, Nikki. And we're so excited to connect with you. 
Darylise once was a collegiate athlete, and I'm an avid sports fan, a former player, and all-around enthusiast. So we've been looking forward to this one. One thing I've been waiting to ask you, as in what has it been like to be the first? Darylise mentioned you were the first Black woman hired to coach an NCAA fencing team, and I'm guessing you were often the first or the only, uh, whether as an athlete or a coach. Can you share a little bit about what that's been like for you, being the first? I think I did really think that much about it initially. I was given a, a wonderful opportunity by Temple University. Uh, when I first came to Temple, I came as a graduate student and they had a graduate assistantship where they needed someone to teach their fencing classes. And my college coach had sent several of her former players to Temple and they taught the fencing classes and got their master's degree. So that's what I did. And when I came, they had a fencing club. And I didn't know what a club was. I had only known a team. And at that time, men's and women's athletics were very separate. And so I went to the women's athletics director, and it was in the college and really very student-oriented, very educational-oriented, which was very different from how the men's athletics program was structured. And I said, you know, why don't we have a team? Why do we have just a club? And she went, I don't know. Should we have one? And I said, well, yeah. And so she said, okay, if you have enough interest, we'll do it. And so that's how it started. There was no master plan. There was no forethought. I think I was just naive enough to, to go into an athletic director's office and say we should have a team. And they went for it. So here I was right out of college coaching a Division One program from step one, from the very beginning. And so I didn't give a lot of thought to being the first. Fencing is a very male-dominated, very... European male-dominated sport. And so there weren't any other coaches that looked like me, but I had a good support system at Temple. And I think it was something that I, you know, I just focused on what I was doing and hoped that that would set an example for others. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And Nikki, as you mentioned, fencing is a very male-dominated or historically has been a very male-dominated, very European sport. So can you talk about how you got into fencing originally? Like what got you into the sport? Again, purely by chance. You know, I've been very blessed. I was always involved in sports in high school and junior high school. And so when I went to in high school, my senior year of high school, they had a new coach, a new physical education teacher that came to the school and she started a fencing club. I was on the tennis team. I was on the basketball team. And I said, fencing, what's that? You know? And so it just sounded kind of cool. So I, I went and tried it out and realized I really enjoyed it and started getting more and more involved in it. And then started doing some outside tournaments for us fencing and really picked it up then. So I did not start to my senior year of high school. And then based on some people that I met at some of these tournaments, they convinced me to go to Brooklyn College. I'm from New York City. I grew up in Harlem. Uh, no one in Harlem knew what fencing was, uh, <laughs> at least not with sticks. Uh, <laughs> and so it was something that was so different. And some friends that I met at some of these competitions said, you know, instead of going to City College, which is where my brother had gone and which was close to where I lived, you should come to Brooklyn College because we have a really good fencing coach who uh, is an Olympian. And so it changed my life from that very point. It changed my trajectory. It changed where I went to college. It's how I ended up at Temple. And so it really was a very key part of my, my growth. 
And you know, and I love that you spoke about sort of these relationships that really changed the trajectory of your life. And I'm wondering, Nikki, for you, were those relationships more like an issue of having allies and having people in your corner? Was there representation? You mentioned not seeing a lot of people who looked like you, but can you talk a little bit about allyship and representation in your life and how much, if at all, that's mattered for you? It's mattered tremendously. Uh, I don't think I would have, I would be where I am without that. It started when I first started fencing. There were some uh, male black coaches that had a small club and so I had some connection with folks who looked like me who also fenced, uh, which was very different than what you saw when you went to fencing tournaments. And so we had a camaraderie and I was able to, to really be comfortable uh, and be myself with that group of people. And then started going to tournaments. I've been very fortunate with the coaches that I've had. They have been very supportive. I've been in my corner. And then we had a strong connection at Temple when I first got there, when I was there for a while with some of the faculty that were there that were very supportive of, of me and someone that I could, people that I could go and talk to and bounce things off of. And so without those allies, without that support, you can't, you can't do it. And so that it's very, very important. Right. And I'm, I'm super excited to hear that, you know, you had that sort of experience at Temple, but I'm curious. Can you share a little bit about whether you face any obstacles or barriers or discrimination? And this is both as an athlete and as a coach. Just as a, as a female, you're going to face obstacles and, and discrimination and people not taking you seriously or, or not acknowledging your worth. Uh, and then as a Black woman, that just gets multiplied. I remember when I first started coaching the first couple of years, you know, I had a white male assistant coach. And people would come into the fencing room and immediately go to him, assuming he was the coach, that it wasn't me. And so, you know, those kinds of subtle things, the being able to really speak out and be yourself was difficult at Brooklyn College. There were, I think, about 35 students of color out of about 35,000. You know, you were lucky if there was another person in your class. You ended up being friends because you were so glad to see somebody who looked like you and being able to support each other. And so the same thing in the fencing world, the few fences of color that were there, we kind of bonded and would kind of look out for each other and be able to share experiences. I remember once I was at a competition and I was in the finals and for the gold medal match, they had assigned a, a referee who was African-American. And the next thing I know, they pulled that referee and put another referee there. And I was like, well, what happened? Why did you do that? And the person who was a signer, who was someone that I knew, he said to me, well, we didn't want anyone to think that the referee would be biased. I just looked at him like, well, you never think about that when there's a white referee. And, and, and so why is that an issue when there's a black referee? I appreciate his honesty with me, but it just shows you the mentality of the sport at that time and how you know things have changed greatly. But there are still obstacles and there's still barriers and there are still assumptions that people make. And so the difference, I think, today, back then, and I feel like an old person back in the day, but <laughs> back then you, you really supported each other and you looked out for each other and you really felt connected because there were so few of you. 
And unfortunately, I don't see that same kind of camaraderie mm. today with uh, some of the young people. Everybody's on their own a little bit and, and not connecting as much as I think would be beneficial. Absolutely. And I think COVID has only intensified that sense of separation for folks. Absolutely. Take for us to fight it To realize that we all are one Make unity and inner peace The only reason Cause we need better Need so much better We deserve better Red, You know, Nikki, one thing that Zach and I talk a lot about behind the scenes and that I just think can't really do DE&I work and not talk about this, but is the issue of holding multiple identities simultaneously. And you touched on this, on the barriers that women face in fencing and then the barriers that you faced because on top of that being a Black woman in fencing. And so we all hold all of these identities, right? So you're a Black woman, sometimes the only Black woman, and then an athlete and a fencer and an academic and a myriad of all these other things. And I'm just curious, like, did you feel able to be met and embraced for all of who you are at the same time? Or did you feel like you had to kind of overemphasize certain elements of yourself and minimize other elements based on situations that you found yourself in? And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to that. I think you'll always have to be aware of your surroundings and be aware of situations. And, you know, one one thing that I think that Black folks are, are good at is uh, realizing which part of you you want to share mm-hmm. or expose in a given situation. As an academic and as a professor, that was the most important thing when I was in the classroom. And I didn't want that to be overshadowed. But when I'm in the gym, now I'm focusing more on myself as the coach, but still a teacher because coaching is teaching. And I always wanted to be a teacher my entire life. You know, I was very fortunate, like I said, with Temple allowing me to do the two things that I really love to do, which was teach and coach. I wouldn't have been able to do that many other places. But, you know, going back to your question, you always have to walk that tightrope, depending on the environment. I grew up in Harlem, in predominantly in an all-Black neighborhood. It wasn't until high school that I really went to an integrated school and then or junior high school, actually, and then in college, being a, a one of very few minorities, and then coming to Temple was a different experience. And so you have to judge your, your surroundings and your situation and adjust. You always have to adjust. You always have to play that game as to what part of you you want to share. Yeah, right. And then all, I guess like creating those safe spaces as well or being in safer spaces. I love when you mentioned how you've always been interested in being a coach and being a teacher. And I was thinking about, Nikki, how some of the stories that really stood out to me from the episodes that we did on on diversity in sports were stories of athletes. Some of the stories were of them being persecuted or discriminated against, whether due to gender, race, religion, or any other factors. But 
a lot of the stories that people stress were the stories of support. And I wanted to ask you, you spoke a little bit about the support that you received as an athlete, but on the coaching end of things, how have you supported your players during difficult times or players who maybe hold more marginalized identities? And can you share about some of those experiences that you've had being a support for your team? Yeah, it's all about building, as you said, building relationships and communication. We have a small team, and so communication is very, very important. And so we meet with all of our athletes one-on-one at the beginning of the year, and we talk about their goals, and we try to get to know them a little bit and let them get to know us. Uh, We have an open-door policy where the girls know that they can come into the office at any time. And often they do. And just we always have snacks in the office and they come get food. They'll sit down and have lunch. They just hang out sometimes. And I like that because I want them to know that there is a safe place for them to go to tell us how happy they were about that A that they got on that calculus test or how bummed they are about the D that they got on the chemistry test or whatever. But we want them to know that there's a place that they can come to. We let them know that, you know, we're here for them at any point, at any time, that they can uh, call us if there's a problem, they can come talk to us. But you have to build that relationship. You have to get to know them and, and you have to let them get to know you. And so you build that trust. We just really focus on good communication. And I get in their business a little bit. Um, <laughs> they, they know that. Um, as I tell them, and my alumni will tell them, you know, my spies are everywhere. <laughs> you know, I try to keep them on the straight and narrow a little bit and let them know that I got my eyes on them. But also I let their parents know that. And I think that's really important. Most of our fences come from out of state. And so parents, you know, they're letting their 17, 18 year old daughters go off and be under your care. And I take that very seriously because I had a daughter who went off to college and I know what I expected from her coach. Mm. And so I let them know that, I let the parents know, you know, I have my eyes on them. They're not just here as athletes, but they're people that I want to see grow, mature, graduate, do good things, be good citizens and, and contribute to our society. And all of that is important. Well, side note, what did your daughter, what was her sport? She actually was a, a softball player. Oh, <laughs> love it. Nice, nice. She was a softball player. My son was a baseball player. They both played Division One sports. And uh, so they had no choice, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for sharing that. And uh, you sound like an amazing coach. I wish I had you in some part of my uh, athletic career. But let's wait to, to Far that. from perfect. Far from perfect. Hey. <laughs> we're, we're still learning. We're still learning. I hear you. And this is actually my 50th year. Wow. I, I was corrected. <laughs> wow. By my sports information people. They were like, I said, that's my 49th. They go, no, 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 it's your 50th year. Wow. wow. Congratulations. <laughs> so let's switch to the sort of the athletic side of things. For your career, like who, who were some of your allies and supporters and if you can, do you have any like meaningful stories of personal allyship that might have helped you earlier in life? Well, as I said, I ended up going to Brooklyn College and fencing for uh, a woman named Denise O'Connor. And all of my coaches have been white, except for like the uh, coaches when I first started in a little club that was in Brooklyn. Denise was very well known in the fencing world. And I think that helped protect me a little bit from some of the negative things that might have happened for other fences, because she was so well-known and respected, we were known as Denise's girls. And so she kind of protected us in many ways, but she was definitely 
a role model and mentor to me. In addition to that, my coach, once I came to Temple, the coach that I had in Philadelphia, uh, his name was Lajos Chizar, and he was a coach at University of Pennsylvania at that time. And when I came to Temple as a graduate assistant, you know, I was rich. I was making $3,000 a year, and I thought I was rich. And a friend, another graduate student who was a friend, so he said, well, you need to go to this club and, and meet him. He's a, a world-renowned coach. And I was like, well, I can't afford fencing lessons. I can't afford to go to a club. And he goes, well, just come anyway. So I went and I met Coach Chizar. And, you know, he watched me fence. And, I, you know, he says, well, you know, I want you to come to my club. And I go, well, I really can't afford lessons. I can't afford to join a club. And he said, that's okay. I will give you scholarship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was, that was the end. Of, and that is how I ended up there. So he was a very great coach, great person. And so, and he was a Hungarian. He was a Hungarian coach, but just saw me as, as a person who was talented and wanted to work with me. And then the other mentor who was very instrumental in my development once I got to Temple was Tina Sloan Green, who Zach, you may know. Mm-hmm. Tina uh, was a professor here at Temple for many years. She was the field hockey and lacrosse coach. She, along with myself and Alpha Alexander and Linda Green, founded the Black Women in Sport Foundation. Mm-hmm. And Tina was instrumental in that, still is. She was the, the fire behind that organization. And she was always someone that not only encouraged me, but pushed me and got me involved in things that I never would have been involved in. You never said no to Tina when she asked you to do something. <laughs> But she was definitely uh, very, very instrumental in in my development and supportive of everything because there were, you know, we were the only black coaches at Temple at that time, uh, besides, of course, John Cheney. But I have to say, my biggest supporter, my biggest mentor, my biggest everything was my mother. She was not athletic, she was not an athlete. I have an older brother, he was not an athlete. I was the anomaly in the family, but she was always, you know, supported whatever we wanted to do. If we wanted to do something, she found a way to do it. She was a single parent. My dad died when I was very young and she always worked, but just always found a way for Mm. us to pursue whatever our dreams were. My brother wanted to be a pilot and she found a way to get him flying lessons. I got involved in fencing and had to travel and go all these places and she made it possible. And she was the one, she and my college coach were the ones who convinced me to come to Temple for graduate school. They didn't convince me. They conspired. I have to say they conspired. <laughs> just convincing. Um, but she was always supportive and always there for us. And unfortunately, she passed away a year and a half ago. But uh, but she was 94 and lived a great life. But wow. was always, always, if that's what you want to do, we'll find a way to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And I will, I will forever be grateful for that. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. And we're sorry for your loss a year and a half ago. And, you know, it sounds like your mom was just such a, an incredible force of love in your life. We will put a link to the Black Women in Sport Foundation so that folks can read a little bit more about that and find out a little bit more because that's such an important resource that you mentioned, Nikki. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. 
As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical. And a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity, or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code DIVERSITY to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. You know, I wanted to ask, and this is where I'm going to like fangirl out for a minute and just say that as an athlete, you've had uh, so many incredible experiences, right? Whether nationally or internationally, going to the Olympics, like competing at such a high level and all these things. And I'm just wondering, not that any of those have to be your most cherished experience, but can you just like tell us like what has been your most cherished experience, whether it's as a player or a coach, do you have a moment that you're like, oh my God, this moment or this time feels the most sacred in my life of athletics? I think as a, as a fencer, probably the 76 Olympic team, just making an Olympic team, you know, that and winning the national championships the first time, which was in 75, those two things were pretty, pretty special. And the Olympics weren't special. I mean, I fenced well and it was okay. American fencing was not that strong at that time. It's much stronger today, but we did well. But just being at the Olympic Village, meeting all these athletes from all over the world, 
meeting people that you had seen on television, <laughs> you know, so I was awestruck by them. And it was just a fantastic experience. And what was even nicer was my family, because it was in Montreal, my entire family was there, my husband was there. And so that made it very, very special. As a coach, it would probably be the year we won the NCAA FOIL team championship, which we just celebrated. The That entire team was just inducted into the Temple Hall of Fame this past fall. Wow. And so that was that was a very very exciting time awesome. to to win it all. And we won it all with a very young team and we were we were the underdogs. We weren't expected to win. We won it against Penn State, which is always a rival for Temple. And they had already beaten us twice that season. So they came in very confident. And it was a great upset. And so those those were things that you don't forget. Ah, I love it. Congratulations. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, Nikki, something that, that's come up a little bit in our conversation today and that came up a lot in my interview with Bodine Sanders was he shared about being a black athlete in a very white world. And I know, you know, everyone has different experiences of that, right? Of sort of, you know, Zach touched on earlier, kind of being the first and the only in certain spaces. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how that was for you to just be be a black female athlete in a world that was perhaps you didn't see a lot of people who looked like you. Like, what, what was that like for you? Uh, at times it was lonely. At times it was very isolating. But at other times it really wasn't as much of an issue as it might have been because of the camaraderie of your teammates. I think that's the thing about being on a team. You know, I look at my teams over the years and there were girls who, if it wasn't for fencing, they never would have known each other. They never would have been in each other's circles. They never would have interacted. They never would have been friends. And I think being on a team and sport really overcomes some of those barriers because you're with these people all the time and you have to depend on them and you're part of a, a group. It takes away some of those silos and those separations and makes people get to know each other as human beings. And sport, you know, it's a cliche, but it really is the equalizer. You know, people respect you for what you do and not for who you are. That's, I think, a big lesson and a big value of sport is I'm able to put people in a room and get them to, to work together and to overcome differences and to face differences and to talk about differences, but they'll leave there better people because of the diversity of the situation they've been in that if it wasn't for the team, they never would have been in. Temple is such a diverse university. I used to teach this in one of my classes. Yeah, but you know, if you walk around campus, diversity isn't really as diverse as you think. Mm -hmm. Everyone's in their silos, everyone's in their pockets, and how much overlap is really in the classroom. And so we try to have that. We have that in the gym also. All of my teams have been diverse. I have international students. I have students from all over the country. I have students from rural areas. I have students from cities. I've had kids who the town didn't have a stoplight. And so, you know, just meeting and, and being able to talk to, to people uh, who come from different backgrounds, who have different worldviews, I think is really what education is about. Wow. That, that's awesome, Nikki. Thank you. 
Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. And I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability, productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So, connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. Tell me a little bit, and and I guess it's maybe a broader question uh, that we probably could have our own episode on, a separate episode on, but what sort of changes would you like to see in terms of like diversity, equity, and inclusion in this world of, of athletics? I think it has to start with young people. One of the things the Black Women's Sport Foundation uh, focuses on and, and our mission is to expose young girls and boys to a variety of non-traditional sports. You never know what you're going to be good at if you don't try it. And, you know, I never grew up saying I want to be a fencer and I want to be an Olympian or I want to be a coach. I actually just fell into things quite haphazardly. And so I'm one of the fortunate ones. But there are so many talented kids out here that just don't have the opportunity. And so what we try to do with the foundation is provide opportunities for kids to be exposed to fencing and to soccer and to tennis and to field hockey and lacrosse, sports that they may not have in their school, sports that they may have never seen before, to just let them be aware that these things are available to them. And so I think exposing young people to a variety of sports is so important because they don't know what they're good at, you know, and we tend to not only as coaches or as school systems, but kids, young kids themselves, they tend to flank towards those sports they're familiar with. Uh, but there are other things that they can do. And so having that exposure, I think, is really important. So that's a big difference that I, I would like to see, because right now I see with my grandchildren, you know, these private clubs, everything is you know pay to play. And that locks so many kids out of opportunities. And so, you know, you get into the high school level, college level. And kids haven't had an opportunity to try different sports. And so then you get college coaches who are saying, well, I would love to have a diverse team, but there's no one at, you know, at the level that I need to recruit. And so it can't start at college. It has to start in middle school. And we have to provide opportunities in the school system so that it's not dependent on private clubs and therefore very expensive. Yeah. So Nikki, thank you so much. I'm really glad that you spoke about the different barriers to access, whether they be socioeconomic or representation or lack of exposure to certain sports for young folk. And something that I've been thinking a lot about too is just the allocation of resources within the athletic arena, even just within the world of sports. So for example, I went to a 
D2 school, um, my first college, and I played women's volleyball. And there were different resources, right, for the women's volleyball team versus the men's basketball team, let's say, or the men's baseball team. And I'm guessing that being part of a women's fencing team might be different than something like a men's basketball or football team. And so can you speak a little bit about maybe some of the gender disparities and or sports disparities just within the athletic arena? Because I think it's important for people not to hear athletics and think, oh, all sports have the same access and the same funding and the same whatever, because that really is not the case. No, not at all. It you know varies very much from, from school to school. Uh, even at the high school level, you see so much disparity. Um, where there is, it's not about revenue because the high schools aren't really producing revenue. And still you see this disparity between men's and women's sports and the number of coaches and the, the budgets and the travel and so forth. On the college level, you know, it varies from, from school to school with Title IX. You know, this is, what, I think, the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And so Title IX made a drastic change in women's sports, in gender equity. But still, there's a lot, a long way to go. There's still a lot of inequity in budgets and travel, coaching. There's a big difference, of course, between the revenue-producing sports and the non-revenue-producing sports. There's a difference, like for fencing, Temple is in the American Athletic Conference, but fencing is not a sport in that conference. And so the sports in that conference get more attention because they lead to you know, conference results than sports that are not in the conference. But we are an NCAA sport, and so that, you know, does give us some credibility and support. I've been very fortunate in that Temple's been very supportive of our fencing program. We've been successful, which has a lot to do with it. Um, But the thing is that we've always had good support from our administration because of not just our athletic success, but also the academic success of our team. Because that's also, as a professor, academics is first and foremost in my mind that we want to make sure that these young ladies graduate and and do good things. And so our goal as a team is always to have a 3.5 GPA. This past semester, we had a 3.46. So we were were close. But I mean, for 19 girls, that's a uh, 19 young women. That shows the importance that they understand why they're at school. And I tell them, you know, you're here to get a good education. Uh, Fencing just makes it a lot more fun. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I love that. I wish I had you as a coach, too. Zach Zach was saying that earlier. I'm like, I wish I had you as a coach. And I do just want to comment that, like, when we're talking about sports, we're using, like, we're talking about women's sports and men's sports because that is what the standard collegiate experience is. And I am very aware, and as listeners heard on the episode, that there are gender identities outside of the binary that are often either not represented in sports or underrepresented or might not not know where they fit. So I just want to be the honoring oh, of the yeah. fact that, yeah, like that there are a lot of a lot of folks out there who don't even really have the opportunity to get onto a court or onto a field or into a pool because of the gender dynamics and expectations and discriminations that that are still alive and well within the world of, of sports. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of put that out there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's an area that is still so sensitive and and people don't know how to navigate it yet. And, you know, there's a lot of struggle with how to navigate some of those issues and how to make sure that we're providing opportunities for everyone 
regardless of how they identify. Nikki, I want to chat a little bit about the work you're doing, you know, currently, whether it be professionally or personally. Can you share more about what you're up to now? Right now, of course, I'm coaching, uh, for still full-time coaching. This has been the last year and a half has been very trying, you know, for, for everyone. Uh, trying to navigate with COVID, trying to keep people healthy and still give them a meaningful experience, trying to keep their academics on par. And so it's been a very difficult, you know, year and a half for everyone. Schools trying to navigate how, how do we keep schools open? And so right now, you know, just spending all my, all my energy and time trying to do that. I'm still involved, not as much with the Black Women's Sport Foundation, but still trying to provide opportunities for young people. And again, which is very difficult right now with the COVID. And so hopefully we get this behind us at some point or learn how to live with it better. We'll be able to continue to move forward with some of those experiences. But just trying to keep your head above water right now is the name of the game. Nikki, thank you so much for just keeping it so real and authentic. Like, yeah, trying to keep our heads above water. Zach and I are going to have some more questions for you, but I'd love to move into listener questions first. So we have some people who called in for this episode. We actually didn't get any email questions, which I love that we have a lot of listeners calling in with questions. So let's go to the first question from Alex. Hey, this is Alex from Philly. And I had a question. I'm a guy in sports. So my question is, in the hyper-competitive world of sports, what are the psychological and emotional effects on the athlete's mind as it relates to being an interchangeable part, often being replaced as part of the machine? So hopefully you guys can shed some light on that. Appreciate what you do. Again, this is Alex from Philly. In terms of psychological stress and, and mental health, as we know, that's been really brought to the forefront recently by several people. And definitely in the college setting, it is something that has to be paid attention to. Temple does a good job. We have, within the athletic department, we have an, a wellness center where they provide mental health support for our athletes, as well as a university for students in general. I think with COVID, it has multiplied the need for attention to mental health because of some of the isolation that some of uh, students feel. And so it is an integral part of students' lives and our lives as coaches to make sure that we are paying attention not just to their, their physical development, but also their mental development, their mental health, and trying to help them navigate some of the situations that they're coming across. But now, especially with the online learning, you know, kids were sitting in their rooms all day. The only time they got out was to go to practice uh, when we were in the height of the pandemic. And so that really heightened some of the anxiety and depression uh, that uh, students were feeling. It wasn't just athletes, it was students in general, mm -hmm. but we were able to try to support them. But you have to deal with the mental aspect of any athlete because it's such an integral part to, to their performance and to their lives. And to, to add on to that, I think, you know, I hear so much in pro sports when a player gets traded and they've been with a team for 10 years or whatever, and they have to say, oh, I understand it's just the business. And I think that's so much easier when you make six and seven and eight figures. You can treat it like that and understand that where you're going to, you're, you're also going to be able to take care of your family and make money. And not that it's not a tough thing, but I think that ability for that to really play on your psyche and your mental health 
is even greater in the collegiate space, whether you get injured or whether you're not getting playing time or something happens that you don't have that backup of knowing, hey, I'm secure in my future. You're like, oh, no, what is going to happen with my future because of what just took place? So it's tough to deal with. I think, you know, having a therapist and having people to talk to is invaluable and schools do provide those sorts of resources. Uh, When you're in the the pro level, teams also provide that. And of course, you can afford to do it yourself. But again, sometimes even making the decision to make that move can be tough at a young age. So it's a conundrum. It's a tough area that I think more resources should be uh, dedicated to. Yeah, we really do focus on that. The saying is, you know, it's okay not to be okay. And just trying to destigmatize the whole mental health issue and just letting athletes know that if you need to talk to someone, it's okay. It's okay that you're feeling this way and let's try to work through it because, you know, we're supposed to work, you know, be tough and suck it up and just keep going and, and letting them know you can take a pause and figure out what's going on. Yeah. And you know, Nikki, one thing that really stood out to me about your coaching philosophy is to emphasize that players are people, right? And like to take an active interest in in their lives and their academic lives. They're, you know, you, you talked about sort of your spies being everywhere, right? And so kind of like caring deeply about what is happening with your players outside of just their ability to perform and compete. And I think to Alex's question, that is not always the case. That certainly was not my experience as a collegiate athlete, that who I was outside of my ability to perform mattered. And I think that is the thing, right? It's not reducing a person just to their performance. And that really stood out to me with both Jordan Kiesler and Natalie Fahey's experiences were like just the importance of really having a holistic view of personhood that exists outside of the athletic arena, whether that person is, you know, in kindergarten playing soccer for their first ever time, or whether they're competing for millions of dollars or something in between. It's the recognition that actually there's more to an athlete than just their athletic performance. So another listener, Henry, called in with a question. Zach, if you could play that question for us, that'd be great. Hi, this is Henry from Columbus. My question is, what types of resources do student athletes have when they're discriminated against? The athletic department has senior staff that, and we have a a DEI committee that athletes can talk to or go to in addition to the university's DEI resources. And so there are things within the athletic department as well as within the university itself that provides an avenue for students to uh, be able to share experiences that they feel were discriminatory and have them addressed. Thank you so much, Nikki. And thank you, Henry, for that question. I didn't know that. So let's go to this next question, Nikki. uh, We're going to play this for you. And it's one I think about a lot myself, but I'd love to get your opinion on it. And I'm really glad Winnie called in and asked us this. Here's this question from Winnie, who's uh, local here in Philly. Hi, I am Winnie. I live in Philly and I have a question. I am a huge football fan and I know it's a dangerous sport and I want to know if I should feel badly enjoying football or any other sport for that matter that risks lifelong injury for its players. Thank you. Good question. Uh, I too am a great football fan. (laughs) And the thing is that we have to do everything we can to try to keep people safe, but we can't stop 
people from doing things that they want, being involved in sport because of safety issues. What I think we need to put the emphasis on is how can we keep people as safe as possible? I think that's where the focus should be, whether it's equipment, whether it's rules, whether it's ages, you know, like is there an age that we shouldn't let young people play certain sports before a certain age and, and so forth. So I think there are other ways to protect athletes as, as best we can. But I think the pluses, the advantages to being involved in sport really are very large. And if we can do everything possible to keep them safe, I think it outweighs the risk. I feel the same way about it because I, I played football from a young age and, you know, looking forward to if I have a, a child who wants to play football, I'm probably going to lean against contact sports until like high school. I don't think uh, middle schoolers need to be slamming into each other on the football field, but that's just my personal opinion. It is a personal choice, but I think there are things that we can do to keep them mm -hmm. safe. And maybe it's what do you call it, tag football or, you know, there's mm -hmm. other things that you can do to still learn the skills and not have the physical contact as much at a young age. Yeah. Wow. Thank you both so, so much. And thank you, Winnie, for that question. And yeah, and football, I mean, football is a huge contact sport and huge for injuries, but you look at stuff like baseball and, you know, pitcher's elbow and basketball. And I had seven concussions from playing volleyball. So oh, wow. like, oh, I mean, some of them were from car accidents too. I think it was like five <laughs> volleyball concussions and two car accident concussions. And so, yeah, I mean, minimizing the risk to the athlete, I think is so important. And also back earlier mentioned the psychological ramifications of, of taking away a sport from someone that loves that and wants to do that. So yeah, I love, I love the rich conversation. So we have another question from Chris. Hi, this is Chris from Ohio. And I had a question in a world of constant social media, how can we encourage professional athletes to set good examples for impressionable youth? Social media is a a double-edged sword, to say the least. You can't get the kids off of it. I mean, it's just impossible. And so the images that our professional athletes are putting out there, I think are extremely important. They are looked up to. They are seen all the time. And so there is a responsibility to whom much is given, much is, uh, is asked. You're not just the average person to say, well, I can just do whatever I want to do. There are people that are look, young people that are looking up to you. And I think the images that you portray and the things that you show and the things that you do, there are a lot of professional athletes who are doing a lot of good things. Some of them you know about, some of them you don't. Mm -hmm. But I think it really does matter. And social media and trying to limit the exposure of y'all young people to social media is, I think, also very important because it is just so influential. You know, we struggle when we have a team rule, when we go to a team dinner, everybody has to put their phone away. They struggle with that. They have to sit there for an hour without their phones. They actually have conversation and talk, and it's really very nice. But it's not something they would do on, you know, no phones in practice. And, you know, as soon as they get out of practice, the first thing you're doing is you can see what messages they missed or whatever. Mm -hmm. To say that it doesn't matter, I think, is, is a fallacy. I, I think that uh, young people are on social media all the time. And so what's what they're seeing and, and what they're observing is very important. I'll tell you one thing. I would probably uh, have a much different opinion on life, on individuals, on a whole lot if social media was prevalent when I was a kid. And I, I experienced the 
creation of it and the advent of it, but I was already in college. Kind of my mindset was kind of a little more solidified. I can't imagine being younger, being in my teens and and my favorite player goes on a Twitter rant and <laughs> and talks talks some junk on a on a on a person or a race and, I, and now I, my reaction is what it is. Yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic that no generation prior to the current one has had to deal with. So it that makes it more difficult to understand how do you move on from it? How do you handle what comes out and either take that as gospel or make your own opinion from it? I think the power that sports and athletes have is tremendous because of that impact. We've seen it with, you know, celebrities as well. It's a lot of power. It really is. Before they have time to form their own opinions, they're hearing other people's opinions. You know, but, you know this generation, they, they've all grown up with technology. This is the first generation that this is all they, they know. You know, my grandchildren who are little are probably better with technology than I am. They can get on and get to TikTok and, and do whatever. And it's just, it's nuts. There's no Nikki Frank TikTok account? Yeah. No, no. Oh. I have no social media at all. My assistant coach handles all the social media. I don't touch it. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. Well, yeah, and thank you so much for that question, Chris, because athletes do hold so much power and sway. And I love, Nikki, that you talked about it being a double-edged sword and there being potential for good and potential for not so good. So thank you so much. Our last listener question is from a listener named Victoria. Hi, this is Victoria from New Jersey. And my question is, how can we support athletes as people rather than for their accomplishments? Thank you. Essential. Very, very important. We have to get to know our, our players. We have to know get to know families. We have to get to know their strengths, the things they struggle with, try to support them in any way that we can while still holding them accountable. It's very important to support, but it's also very important to set the bar, to set the standards, to let them understand uh, your team culture and what's expected of them and to hold them accountable for that. Sometimes they struggle with being held accountable because things have been a little bit easy for some of them and they've gotten away with doing whatever. And now you put them in a situation where, no, you have to be here and you have to be on time and you have to do this. And, you know, just making sure that they, number one, understand the expectations before they come. Here is what we're about. Here is what our team culture is. This has to be something that you want to be a part of and something that we feel that you will fit into. But then once they're here, you have to be held accountable for, for your actions and what you do, knowing that you're going to make mistakes. None of us are perfect, but we're going to learn from those mistakes and move on. But we're not going to ignore them or feel that I don't have to follow the rules because I'm the superstar. Or You know, I have no superstars. Everybody, once you walk in that gym, everyone, the same expectations, the same work ethic is expected of everyone. Thank you so much. I love that question. Our listeners have such great questions. (laughs) Thank you. Hi, listeners. Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, We'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. 
Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. You know, Nikki, I wanted to ask you, I read a recent article about you from Temple University's Temple Now, and we'll put a link to that article in the show notes. It's entitled A Balanced Life, Nikki Frank, Fencing Legend. And I guess the article made me think about two things. So in it, you shared that you never really wanted to be an Olympian, but you always wanted to be a teacher. So I wanted to hear a little more about that. And then I also wanted to just hear in your own words, like, how do you, as this in many ways, like a trailblazer and an example and someone who's accomplished a lot, like how do you practice balance in your life? So I know that that's a lot of questions, but I guess, can you talk a little more about always wanting to be a teacher rather than wanting to be an Olympian? And like, how do you find balance in your life? Probably from the time I can remember, I always wanted to teach. I went to Brooklyn College. I majored in health and physical education and to to get a teaching license. I planned on teaching in New York and that was going to be my life. All I knew was New York. And as I said, my mother and my college coach conspired to get me to go to Temple. And the way they did it was in New York at that time, you had to get your master's within five years. So they said, why not just go get it now while they're going to pay for it because you have free tuition and you can get your master's and then come back to New York in two years. Of course, I never caught that train and never quite got (laughs) back there. And so teaching, as I said, Uh, I taught in the public health department uh, up until about four or five years ago uh, when I retired from teaching, but I was a full-time faculty member as well as head coach. And so it kept me very busy, but it also gave me balance to go leading into the second part of your question. It also gave me balance in my life. When I was fencing, when I was competing, I was still in school. When I first came to Temple, I was teaching classes. I was taking graduate classes. I was training. And I was competing and traveling. And I was recently married. So I was doing a lot of balance. Yeah. My husband has been the, the rock. Again, you know, you can't do this. If you have a partner, you can't do this unless your partner supports you. Otherwise, you're spending your life making choices. You know, do I do this or do I do that? Who do I make happy? I had a very supportive mother, as I mentioned. And then my husband has been super supportive and has really been my number one fan as I've supported the things that he's done. And so, you know, that's made it possible to do all that I've done without having to make those hard choices Mm. and decisions about, you know, which way, which road to take. Having all those things going on, it gave me not just balance, but it, it gave me outlets for different strengths that I had. And I think, you know, if you look at even the 1980 Olympic team, when the, uh, the U.S. boycotted the Moscow Olympics, Mm. And so we weren't able to go. And that was very frustrating because I knew that was going to be my last Olympics. And, you know, you work four years, you work hard for four years to make an Olympic team. At that time, there was no funding for us. So, you know, you were using your own money to train and to travel. USOC wasn't giving us any money. And I knew people who had just put their lives on hold for four years to make that team and then to have it just taken from you. And you had no control over that. And for some Some of the people I knew, that was very devastating. It was very, very traumatic. For me, I was very disappointed, no no question, because I was really tuned. I was really ready to go. But I think having those other things in my life, having a family, uh, having uh, my teaching, having my coaching, I think that helped me because I never stepped away from fencing. It's been a part of my life since I was a senior in high school, uh, and I've never stepped away from it. And so... That helped me to deal with that disappointment 
because I had these other avenues. I, I have never been one to put all my eggs in one basket. Right. They've always been spread around to different interests that I have. And, um, and, and that's a blessing. That's a blessing, I think. Awesome. You know, shifting gears a little bit, and of course, everyone listening to this episode, uh, we hope you've checked out the, the two previous episodes about diversity in sports. But what were any major takeaways that you had from listening to the two episodes? They were really interesting. It just highlights how far we've come and yet how far we still need to go. That there's so much work that still needs to be done in terms of diversity in sports on all levels, from the playing level to the boardroom and everywhere in between. And again, not only teaching our young people about different athletic opportunities that are available to them, but also behind the scenes opportunities, you know, whether it's coaching, whether it's television, whether it's, you know, the behind the scenes things, whether it's administration, compliance, sports information. There are lots of avenues for you to be involved in sport besides being an athlete. And sometimes, you know, our young people aren't aware of that. It's like being in the media. You want to be in front of the camera. Well, the folks behind the camera have a lot more security, Mm -hmm. uh, probably, than those in front of the camera. And so just making people aware of all the avenues that are there, that there are women out there coaching, there are women out there playing football, there are women doing all kinds of things. But also, there are still barriers for many of these women. And I think that's what I took away from from those episodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was very, very stimulating and interesting. But I think that we have to continue to work to level the playing field and to keep those opportunities available for people of color and for for women and for everyone who wants to be involved in sport in some way and helping them find a way to be involved. I think that's really important. Thank you so much. Were there things that we didn't talk about in those episodes or things that, Nikki, we didn't talk about today in our conversation together that you'd have wanted to say? It was very thorough. I have to uh, thank you. You had some great questions. My focus is always on young people and providing them opportunities to excel in whatever they want to excel in, whatever, but exposing them. You know, I've been fortunate not only have I had a female coach, which is unusual in fencing per se, in all of the NCAA fencing schools, there are only seven women head coaches, and I'm the only African-American. There's only three, four counting myself, African-American head coaches, but of the four, three are males. And so I have probably about a dozen young ladies that are out coaching now who fence for me. And I'm very proud of that, that they saw a female coach and saw themselves. I could be a female coach also. If we keep exposing young people to all these different opportunities, they can see that that's a possible for me too. I can I can do that. I can do a, a podcast on diversity in sport and do the things that you guys are doing. It's all about exposure and letting them see people who look like them, who have the same gender, have the same, um, and are different, that they can too do some of these things. But again, just making sure that young people know that that it's limitless, but they have to be exposed. Otherwise, they don't know they can do it. I want to play basketball because basketball is what I know and what I see. Or I want to play football because that's what I know and what I see. Well, But you can do other things and, and you can be a coach and you can be a compliance officer and you can do all of these things. But if they don't know they exist, how can they possibly seek those opportunities? 
Right. That's so true. And I mentioned in, in one of the episodes that that's why I enjoyed going into schools and speaking to kids about working in sports, because a lot of them didn't know that there are five to six times more jobs working right. for a team than there are positions playing on the team. And and those jobs are, are more readily attainable as well. So that that's such a good point. And thank you for touching on that. There's one other thing, if you don't mind, I want to touch on. It's just the academic piece. Because the other thing that we have to do for our, for our young folks is, regardless of whether you think you're going to play professional sports or not, uh, getting an education. First of all, even to be able to get into college and to make sure that from junior high school, taking care of their academic responsibilities and being held accountable for that and not being pushed through so that they can continue to play. Um, because they hit a wall at some point and then they get very disappointed in terms of college opportunities that are available to them. And so just reiterating, and when you're going into schools and speaking, you know, I know you talk about you have to keep your academics up. You have to be able to be able to get admitted into college Mm -hmm. if you want to play college sports and then go into professional sports. We can't lose sight of that piece also. Tell us how people can support you or the work you're doing, whether it be personally or professionally? They can check out what we're doing with the Black Women in Sport Foundation. Mm-hmm. It's uh, blackwomeninsportfoundation.org and the wonderful work that that organization has been doing in Philadelphia primarily, but also in other cities and supporting any youth sport program, I think is, is going to be uh, helpful and something that I would encourage people to do to, or to, if they don't have youth sport programs in their areas, you don't have to be an expert to get involved in youth sports and just help, you know, and mm-hmm. just help out parents helping. Parents aren't always the best coaches, but they can be great helpers. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I learned that by, by uh, example. Uh, but it's, you know, just trying to get our kids active and out and doing things and, and it being exposed. For sure. Uh, now, Darius, we have one last question for Nikki. Uh, but before we get to that, Let's take that time to do our Q&A book giveaway. Oh, yay. I love this part. So Zach and I drew a name at random before starting this Q&A episode. And drumroll, the winner is... Anthony Johnson. Congratulations, Anthony. You've won a copy of Daryl Lee's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, and its accompanying workbook. Yay, Anthony. Uh, We'll send you an email and get your information and mail you signed copies of the book and workbook. So thank you so much for being a subscriber. Nikki, one last question. Why do you do what you do? Why is it important to you personally? And why should it matter to others? That's a great question. It's not out of habit, although I've done it for a very long time. But um, (laughs) as I said to you earlier, fencing changed my life from the very beginning. And It gave me opportunities that I never would have had. Uh, My first international trip was to Russia. My last international trip was to China. I've traveled to many, many places in between there. And as a young girl growing up in Harlem from a single parent home, that would be unheard of. And so it has enriched my life in so many ways and given me such good friends that this is something that I just want other young women to experience and to have opportunity to see where it can take them and, and what they can do with it, as well as giving them an opportunity to, you know, if we bring them into our program to, to get a good education. But I think it's just made such a difference in my life, and, and I want to return that favor. God's been good, and, and you want to share that, that wealth of goodness. 
Nikki, uh, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. Another big thank you to our partners, Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management for bringing you to us. We really appreciate it. And we want to thank all of our listeners, wherever you are. Uh, if you're listening to this and you want to get in touch with Nikki, please contact her. And, and Nikki, tell us, what's the best way for folks to get in contact with you? Through email at, uh, at uh, Temple University, and Frank at Temple Dot edu. Awesome. Infrank at temple.edu. And that Frank has an E on the end. I made that mistake <laughs> once. So Infrank with an E on the end uh, at temple.edu. And if you haven't already, please like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And if you'd like to ask us any questions or have any comments, you can call us at 844-888-8148. And we'll try to answer or respond in any upcoming Q&A episode. Also, visit demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Uh, to subscribe to our newsletter and to learn about our other DEI trainings, workshops, we do coaching, consulting, uh, and some other DEI services. So you can check that out at our website. And every episode of the Mystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Daryl East Lyons. Yeah, with the invaluable assistance of co-collaborator and marketing manager, Zach James, assistant producer and editor, Paul Kondo, production and development assistant, Stuart Kreintz, and content editor and creative collaborator, Sunny Taylor. The music you heard is Better by Brittany Monet. Thank you again, Nikki, so much for joining us today. It was such a rich conversation. And thank you to the listener. Please join us next week as we dive into the subject of allyship. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world. <laughs>